Chapter twenty two of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter twenty two. An Epitaph. There was no mistaking William's intentions by the end of August, when my engagement with the Culvers ended also. Something, perhaps my aversion to anything settled and definite, had made me avoid William of late and turn two-pointed conversations by force. But when he announced his intention of giving a dinner-party, to which the Lenines, a few neighbours, and I were to be bidden, while all the world was to come to some sort of entertainment ending with a small dance afterwards, then I felt the moment was at hand. My frock was a serious trouble to me, for the simple reason that I hadn't any. William wished me to let his mother give me one, but I refused. I didn't want William presented to me with a pound of tea, so to speak. Eventually I washed and ironed my white crepe Greek dress, girdling it with a silver cord. Ivadne lent me some lovely misty old lace to give it more of a truly gown look and I painted my slippers with some silver paint Ted kept for doing halos with. Unexpectedly gallant, Ted went to Penzance that morning and brought me a pair of long white suede gloves and a bunch of roses, the kind that are so dark they have a velvety blackness on them. In the afternoon I went to a garden party and sale of work at the vicarage. William was too busy with his preparations to come, and I felt very lonely. Mrs. Lenine had for some time been a little distant towards me. The guests were all people who had known each other for years, and Kissa, though she was as sweet as ever, was pale and quiet. She was looking especially pretty, attired in pale blue, a Philistine colour I abhor but in which she seemed charming. Her hat was too grey a blue for the more skyey nature of her frock, and as she exerted herself running about with cups of tea, her delicate little nose would have been the better for some powder. And yet both these things seemed an added charm, because they showed how unsophisticated she was. I went away and watched her from behind a clump of dahlias, and the silly hot tears kept coming to my eyes. I hated myself because I had not led a sheltered life like she had, because I wore my perpetual old silk shirt and a holland skirt I'd made myself. In short, I felt I was young in years but middle-aged in vice, and I grew very silly and unhappy and worst of all, self-pitying, just the mood for which William's admiration and protectiveness would be the best salve. And then, still behind my dahlia bush, I heard two women talking. Poor little Kissa, said one. Anyone can see she's head over ears in love with him, and he's going to marry Miss Lovell, who hasn't a penny and has come from heaven knows where. Oh, her family are very well known down here. I remember her father. Such a charming man, but quite mad. 
I'm sorry for Mrs. Lenine. Of course she'd always counted on young Penrose for Kissa. The voices drifted away. I remained with burning cheeks and a heart that went thump, thump. So that was why Kissa looked so pale, why she was perpetually discussing love and marriage with me. I had never thought for an instant that she had more than the affection of a playmate for William, or I would have nipped him in the bud at once. All that I could do now was to go away and leave William to the one person who really would suit him. For infatuated as he was with me, it was Kiss's type which was his ideal, and to which, while never recognizing that she was of it, he was always unconsciously trying to fit me. In the long run, all that William would want of his wife would be that she should never say, do, or think anything unconventional. Farewell to my dreams of clonance, for though, if I had been in love with William, I should have gone straight for him and held him, yes, and made him glad to be held, against anyone. I could not take him from Kissa when she cared and I did not. I stayed behind my dahlia bush, staring at the sun-bleached lawn, with loneliness and resentment surging up within me. Against the steely purple clouds that often mass up in a blue sky, the church tower, in full sunshine, with its one pinnacle cocked at the corner, showed a light grey-white. Beyond it the roll of the moors made a faint stain of hyacinth. Everything was in an extraordinarily high key, the shadows all light and soft. Even the black silk jet-trimmed best dresses of some of the parishioners looked, in the full sun, of a grey-green tone. The county was mostly in linen coats and skirts of last year's muslins. The few men were in flannels, and everyone was talking and looking as though St. Annan's parochial party were the most absorbing function on earth, and St. Annan's vicarage garden the only place bounded by an intent horizon. And I wished fiercely with all my heart that I could be one of them. I realized that the worst, the only penalty that I paid for a wandering and precarious existence, was that it made me feel different from other girls, girls brought up as Kissa had been, innocent and sheltered. I realized that what had always given me that little feeling of shyness with Kissa, which I had never acknowledged even to myself, was that I felt unfit to be her friend, that at the bottom of my heart I was aware that if Mr. and Mrs. Lenine knew all that I had seen and done, they might not like Kissa to make a friend of me. I had felt prickings of the same feeling before, as I have since, but never with the burning fierceness of that afternoon. Turning, I ran out of the garden, down the empty village street, where the granite cottages glittered with a thousand little diamond-like facets in the sun, up the steps leading to the churchyard, and so, blindly, to the dim, bare coolness of the church. There the bleakness and austerity of the place began to soothe me. 
and after a while I wandered out again, and rounding the church came into a wing of shade thrown by the angle of the transept. There a brass tablet let into the stone of the wall caught my eye, and I stood staring up at it for a minute without taking it in, for it was stained darkly with time and weather, and the lettering was uneven. There are moments in life when an external and apparently alien thing strikes at the heart because the thing itself was conceived in a mood or was the direct outflow of a feeling which finds kinship in oneself. The four lines I now read flashed on me with that quality of gleam and stirred a something which was more a certain knowledge than hope and which I had not known was in me. The tablet bore the date 1721, and had been put up by my little ancestress to her husband, who had died at the age of eighty-five. It ran thus, Sleep here a while, thou dearest part of me. In little while I'll come and sleep with thee. She died a year later, aged eighty. I repeated it over and over, and then I went across the moors to Clonance with it like a song in my heart. I went along a windy ridge, level with the crests of a copse of ash and oak, all the leaves blown pale side outwards as they fluttered from me on their yielding twigs. Through the gaps in the foliage I caught glimpses of that far distance which is of the blue of wood smoke before it lay miles of moorland, patched here and there with party-coloured fields, and dappled with cloud-shadows, spilled over it like purple wine-stains. Then the copse ended and I came out on a wide sloping field, where the corn still lay heaped in little stooks, before being built into the great Cornish Arishmoes and from it the dusty brown partridges whirred clamorously at my approach. All among the stubble wandered a long-stemmed polygonum, whose red leaves shaped like arrowheads glowed transparent as blood where the low-lying sun shone through them. To my left a little quarry, cut out of a streak of deeply orange soil, was scarped into great ribs, where the ragwort lay in drifts like yellow stars, while from the floor of it clumps of smoke-blue borage, tipped with specks of flame-colour, seemed to puff upwards. Smoke and star-drift, hearth-fires and an answering sky, of such was the life the pearly lady and her husband must have led, for of such things was the soul homely enough yet with the certainty of the future and the inner vision that Peter possessed, which had inspired that epitaph. And I had thought it possible to give up all hope of that, for safety with Harry. How long ago he seemed, or the right atmosphere with William. Because I never was able to believe in what is known as a great passion, the lauded thrill of being in love, I had thought the whole thing left me indifferent. Now, in the pearly lady's epitaph, I saw the other side. 
a protecting affection was in itself a passion, because in year after year of intercourse and interchange it fused two people in one more completely than any transitory gleam of fervour, however on the heights that might be. And of all emotions, fusion of oneself in another, that dearest part of one, must be the most intense. Peter, I guessed, would have seen things somewhat differently. For him the heights were not mere projections of the imagination that never touched him personally. But I was not Peter, and could only walk by what light I had, and that it was a very lowly one, a mere beckoning spark from a distant hearth I might never reach was no reason why, now I had caught sight of it, I should ever be false to it again. Down the valley side to home I scrambled, intoning to a little no tune of my own. Sleep here a while, thou dearest part of me. In little while I'll come and sleep with thee. End of chapter 22